Following up on our series of Magic at its 30th anniversary interviews with various uh, key figures in the Magic ecosystem, we are talking tonight with Michael Caffrey of Tales of Adventure, a mid-tier vendor here in the United States. Michael, welcome back to the show. It's great to be back on. Fantastic. Um, I've always valued your insights. Um in the MTG finance space from the you know perspective of an active vendor who's been a, around for a long time and has always seemed to kind of have your finger on the pulse uh, of the market. Can you give me a little bit of your background just so people can understand you know your your experience in this marketplace? Absolutely. So we opened our brick and mortar in uh, Allentown, Pennsylvania, a little bit outside of Philadelphia 10 years ago this month. We've been doing professional tier magic events, formerly Grand Prix, now Star City Opens, et cetera, for about the last eight years. So we spend a lot of money all the time um, buying a lot of cards and turning over a lot of inventory. Uh, we're also very active on social media, on Twitter, at TOA Michael, where we sell a reasonable amount of volume there as well. And that also means that you guys are, have been part of both the pre-booster fund era and the post-booster fund era, the pre-COVID and post-COVID eras. Um, you know, that's uh, a, a pretty wide range of experiences as a vendor, I, I'm sure. Heading into the final quarter of 2023 in what has, by all accounts, been a very profitable year for Wizards and a very concerning one for players and vendors, what what is your perspective on the viability of vending uh, in relation to Magic, this game that we love? So I think the first thing we need to establish is that October always is a bad month for Magic. Uh, I don't know what it is, but going back the entire 10 years I've been doing this, October has just been the worst month in terms of uh, attendance at events, in terms of sales overall, in terms of the amount of things coming to market. So it's important not to overreact too much about October or the spot in the market we are in. That said, events are challenging because of how much critical mass needs to exist to have the vendors and have everything going on. Um, We just saw with Magic Summit this past weekend that their main event attendance was significantly lower than they anticipated and vendors ended up losing a lot of money. Las Vegas had some similar critiques from other vendors because the math is just very punishing for the the vendor side of this. Like the booth fees are generally in the $10,000 range for the weekend. Your your labor costs, your hotel, your travel whatever is equally as much for almost every vendor. So if you're not spending 80 to 150,000 depending on exactly how you set everything up, you're going to have a bad time and those are really big numbers to spend in a weekend and really big numbers to cash fund ahead of time as well. And to reiterate for people that might not be aware of this premise, a lot of this is predicated on the fact that vendors, you know, are at events to sell, but primarily you're there to acquire inventory for sales and other channels, right? Yeah. In in general, I think every store does a a mix of it in their own fashion. There are some stores that are much more focused on buying and some stores that use it as a, as a good retail outlet. Um, We've primarily tried to sell cards at events. Obviously we buy a lot as well. And and dollars wise, we absolutely buy way more than we sell, but we do try to bring inventory that people want to see in person, uh, primarily older foils that tends to do reasonably well in person. And is in part is that in part for the vendors that are focused on the buying side because it's such an efficient process from a vendor's perspective to a have the inventory in hands, uh, you know, available to be reviewed by your buying team and to chain together a bunch of transactions that are dialed into exactly the things that you know are selling well for you and that you can offer top dollar on. I think that's a lot of what it is, is, is people just want, uh, people are providing a service, right? It's, it's rare that you can go into a lot of industries and 
have this efficient transaction mechanism to get rid of things you're no longer using um, because magic cards are so small and lightweight and easy to maneuver um, that there is a lot of emphasis on buying. That's kind of all I have about on that one. Gotcha. So when we're looking at the broader picture of how, you know, how healthy is the magic market, can you speak a little bit as to, you know, the healthiness from a vendor's perspective in terms of ease of survivability in the current market versus how you think, what your perspective is like in terms of how the game is doing. And, and I come at that from the angle of, you know, our, our general understanding from a lot of discussions on cast this year is that Wizards is essentially executing a longer term transfer of profit from the store level to their own bottom line. So answering those kind of in reverse order, if we go back and look at the master series of product, so started with Modern Masters 2013 in 2013, that was a $6.99 retail product. So boxes were supposed to be about 150 or whatever. Secondary market quickly hit 300. I, uh, two years later, MM15, the next big master set, Watsi has realized this, moved the price up to kind of that $15 range where the prior product was selling. And we kind of see that trend of whatever the ceiling was of the last master set is where Watsi defines the height of the market for what they can get on the next one. So Double Masters 2022 boxes did really well out of the gate. They moved up to uh, that like $18 pack range or $20 pack range. And all of a sudden, Commander Masters, we are at that higher number. So Watsi is pretty clearly just trying to find the ceiling for this, these products in the secondary market and pricing them at that number going forward. Yeah, they're they're optimizing the supply-demand graph to try to figure out what is max revenue when you multiply price people are willing to pay that gets us the maximum number of people willing to pay it. Absolutely. Uh, looking at the game as a uh, collection of items that people get to play with each other, I think the game is at the healthiest spot it's ever been. Um, there are so many more ways to play, many ways to collect. There are uh, people who engage with the game as a board game. Like, I own the four Warhammer decks and, and play with those. I don't personally, but but there are people who own the four Warhammer decks and you know just keep them sleeved and on shelf and together as is. Don't change a card, and that's how they play Magic. And there's people that uh, like all of these other properties. I think they're going a little bit too far in terms of like number of legends, in terms of overall card complexity. But that that does appeal to a certain group of people, and that's that's great. Um, I had asked the rhetorical question in the office recently: uh, Would you rather play a game of Magic where you knew every card in the entire ecosystem that somebody could play? So if somebody's holding up, you know, a colorless and a blue, oh well, they have either Mana Leak or Into the Royal, as I show my age on that one, and you play around <laughs> either one. Or would you rather play a, a magic format where you don't know what the person has and they're going to tap their two lands and play something that you have never seen before. You get to read it for the first time and that's the experience. And there are people who want that experience. And I think more current magic players want the second experience now. So that's, I guess, good for the game. Yeah, I mean, a lot, a lot of that would be related to, you know, the ad, the transition of casual players from the kind of unseen unheard from kitchen table scene to the most invested portion of that sub segment which is now the edh player base who you know many of whom may have started in the casual circles or may have started on the competitive you know friday night magic side of things or or you know traveling on the 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 tour circuits that existed pre-covid and and now you know may or may not be in involved in commander uh, games either locally or online. I mean, one of the, the big uh, launches in the social media space for Commander this year was Brian Kibler and company, you know, doing Commander at Home, which is like the the transition of one of the biggest figures, a Pro Tour uh, veteran and Pro Tour winner, a Hall of Famer, you know, who had nothing to do with Commander up until a certain point, now putting a lot of eggs in a basket of content creation on a format that would have been almost certainly looked down upon by the competitive players 10 years ago. Yeah. I think this is all Watsi kind of realizing that their player base has more time to think about magic than they do to actually play magic. And they're designing the game in a way where 
you're excited to get the mail call and then you play the card two or three times and that that does what you want to do but it's not uh it's not like it was a decade ago when you would be playing a hundred games with your favorite deck in the favorite format yeah i think that's a very astute observation actually the the concept of the hobby magic as hobby as opposed to magic as game and that the hobby portion especially during covid likely kept the brand afloat through the process of people being stuck at home with all their cards and having a chance to just sit around with them and figure out what to do i mean i can certainly speaking as you know a fairly typical whale with a very deep collection large inventory and interest in edh you know we play a lot of commander on camera with other pro traders the you know during covid that became a primary hobby where i you know i might have had three or four commander decks built at the time and then once we started playing on webcam given that i had virtually unlimited cardboard on hand it you know now it's 15 maybe it's 20 by the end of the year and there's no i'm not on a mission to build a ton of edh decks it just happens to be convenient to keep them together once you've got them so that you have a lot of variety to offer to the pod and i think you're absolutely right like i sit around from a free time perspective spending a lot more time thinking about decks than actually playing the game, which might happen once a week, maybe twice. Yeah. Going back to the the current modern era for vendors, I think it is about as bad as it ever has been, ever could be. Um, and that's just the nature of uh, the amount of objects that you have to deal with. Um, You're talking about SKUs. Right, just the, the total number of SKUs. Um, you know, we're, we're seeing... You know, you would normally buy 25 shielders at an event or the, the best standard card. And it's great, 25, put them online, we have them. Nowadays, though, it's we have five regular, five Phyrexian, five Showcase, five Textured that are all individual things we have to deal with. That even with having automation, having tools that make these things easier, it's way more work and it's way harder for customers who are trying to get a matching playset for a competitive deck there's not really a way for a store to keep this inventory because you have the same card in so many different places. Uh, we would historically call this the doubling season problem. You look at our inventory of doubling season, this is before the Wilds of Eldraine reprint. We'd have, let's say, two to 12 copies of any given version of doubling season, which sounds like a very reasonable amount of cards until you realize the card has 10 printings. All of a sudden, we own 75 copies of doubling season at hundred dollars each and that's an outrageous amount of inventory to have in a single uh playable item obviously it's a bunch of different SKUs, but as a playable item it's just way too much money tied up and then we have to figure out how do we solve that problem to explore that a little further prior to the booster fund era and the advent of all of the the, the different SKUs just on singles and and the, confu- the general confusion in the marketplace where basically they, they put out a how to collect article for every new set. And it's so information dense that even for the, the players that bother to read it, they've probably forgotten 90% of it the next day. And certainly months later, they have no idea about the relative rarity of various variants and special editions and serialized cards, given that the words uncommon, rare, and mythic increasingly mean so little. <laughs> you know, if they put a rare or a mythic in a commander deck where it's a one-of printing, but they also put in a collector booster, your average player is not going to be able to tell you how more how that is more or less rare than a mythic in a standard set, for instance. I always heard talk, you know, going back to 10 or 12 years ago, my, my first experiences in the MGG finance community, talk from vendors about how foils were considered toxic inventory by comparison to regular regular cards and this is especially because you know in that era of standard and you know extended then modern and legacy most competitive players wanted to have regular frame cards but they were also often cheaper because of the relative rarities of the two at the time and so it's just the market was naturally wider as we've gotten into the booster fund era and we've gotten all these additional SKUs and all these additional variants has the has the non-regular versions of cards become even more toxic from a vendor's perspective they're definitely more toxic in terms of how we get to interact with them because we tend to not uh, list those as frequently or uh, not have as, as strong of a strategy of getting those those cards online quickly. Uh, we've had to adjust multiple times of, of 
when in the process those things get, get handled. But it's basically like every card from the past four years you have to list twice. And uh, on top of that, we have to apply additional uh, steps to make sure that we are, have correctly identified the card all the way through. Um, a card like the Wandering Emperor, where there's a foil version and an etched foil version. Sure. And and a, and a Japanese foil version that was also in high demand overseas. Right, but but the foil and the etched look basically the same because it's not a, a very dark or sharp etched. It's it's kind of that soft etch they did for a couple sets. Sure. So if the person listening doesn't realize that there are two versions, or the person pulling just sees foil and the etched one's in front and, and goes to pull, like all of these are just opportunities to lose a lot of money because there's a hundred dollar price difference between the cards. So we have to do things like keep the the etched foils in a different cabinet than the regular foils to mitigate these types of problems. So it's just a lot of extra stress on the, the processes of interacting with these items. And and that's a result of the fact that cracking booster boxes and selling singles out of them is a relatively narrow margin operation to begin with. And if you can't execute on the labor portion of that efficiently and, and or the you have the potential to make mistakes easily, as you said, it, le- it leads to either a reduction in profit or just outright loss when depending on the nature of the mistake. Yeah, we have largely stopped pre-ordering product, um, we, pre-ordering singles. We've started with Doctor Who and, um, and Lost Caverns of Ixalan, but we only crack about 50 boxes a set, and that's just to fill the website. And when we go to events, that people can order cards in advance. Uh, that's our primary way we want people to engage with us at events, is if you need cards, you know you need cards, just order them in advance, not bring them on site. Uh, but widespread cracking is just I don't think it's, I don't think profitable like it used to be. In in the way that you manage data in your own operation, do you have a, a very good sense of how standard versus pioneer versus modern versus EDH staples tend to do? I don't tend to look at too many cards on an individual card level. We just look on the aggregate of are we still buying things or are the things that we're buying still selling and what items are on the, the extremes of that that we can't keep in stock or uh, are, are accumulating in quantity. So I don't have a great grasp between the three formats. If you had could snap your fingers and have access to that data where basically every sale you had was tagged as to its purpose, did, 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 I mean, maybe it's an obvious question, but does that, does that sound like something that would be extremely useful? And do you have a, do you have a guess as to what that would look like? Do you, I guess what I'm trying to get at is, is standard doing, seeing as little play in paper these days as people think? I think so. Uh, and that's primarily based on, on card value and based on um, what we're able to buy from events. Like if, if standard was a viable competitive format, you would have people selling their decks. You would be seeing a lot of uh, standard staples do really well. Instead, I would expect for every set currently in standard, the most expensive card in that set is not played in any competitive standard deck. Right, A card like Mondrock is a bunch of money, or this is where I show my, my lack of depth in standard, but you know, most of these, these $20 type cards are, are uh, commander all-stars and not particularly strong competitive cards. Yeah, I can think of like, for instance, Questing Druid is a rare that's doing very well right now out of Wilds of Ale Drain, and it's certainly a standard card, but it's also a Pioneer, a Modern, a Legacy, and an EDH card. So those super, you know, the multi-format staples have always done well, will always do well, um, and will lead the pack. The But I know that from my perspective and the, from the, the angle that we review the top movers every week on this cast it's very few and far between that one of the cards with the highest movement is a standard only card. Uh, we see some pioneer, we see some occasional legacies, usually on like a foil that is suddenly relevant there that wasn't before, but most of what you see is modern and EDH cards these days. Yeah, I think that's exceptionally true. Everything song is a one of two, which is uh, tougher from an industry perspective, but, it kind of shows that people just want the stuff for commander right now in terms of wizard sealed strategy in terms of their pricing the the multiple skews unsealed the 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 cadence of of releases can you speak a little bit as to the the challenges that are associated with that for a vendor right now 
I think sealed product in 2023 is a buy it once, be done with it type of approach. Um, there's little reason to go back to, to buy anything afterwards. We, uh, our current strategy on things like collector boosters is we'll buy two to four percent once we sell out in the store. No matter when we sell out, we just do not reorder. Uh, and a lot of that is just how quickly these things get devalued online because there is no no price protection and Watsi is not doing a good job of keeping balanced long-term demand on the underlying products. Are you of the opinion that collector boosters should be printed at a lower rate? I am in favor of the sports card model on sealed product where everything is allocated at some level and that that keeps the underlying singles kind of valuable. It keeps the underlying sealed product kind of valuable. Everyone gets to make a little bit of money on this. And I'm not saying that like your store that's ordering 20 is going to get out, cut to like four, four collector boosters or whatever. But going from the store getting 20 to the store getting 16 makes it so the bigger stores are able to keep inventory better. The smaller stores are able to order and sell out, which is equally good for them. And it's it's just a healthier place in the market. Yeah, because a couple of the things that, you know, trends that people have noticed in our community and, and I've seen discussed more broadly as well is, you know, Amazon coming on the scene a few years back that where they seem to have a direct pipeline from Wizards where there's probably no distributor in the middle. It's just direct. And and for a while, they were setting kind of market leading pricing. Now, lately, over the last, I think, 12 to 18 months, I think they backed off that quite a bit um, where they have a, a solid price, but it's not the cheapest. And the the other thing that we've seen is that you know, you would have pallets of inventory all of a sudden drop six months after a release through the gaming company or whatever, where they've got a sweetheart deal with a distributor. They take on a bunch of product at once. They crack all of it and undercut everybody's singles pricing. And they basically set a new ceiling on price until they're 94 copies of a given mythic or whatever sell it. Right. And that's basically bad for everybody. Like You'd much rather see that inventory in the hands of a bunch of LGSs than than one central player. There was also the story out of Texas, I think, last year, where somebody like was claimed they were poking around in a landfill and found like hundreds of boxes of Modern Horizons two and a bunch of other product that looked like it had been sent for destruction. And that's a that's a story I've heard echoed in Eastern Europe and parts of in other parts of Europe where the they, it seems like product that sits in the warehouse too long just gets incinerated. I, mean, I think that's relatively commonplace in every industry. Um, you are going to be overprinting a little bit, um, you know, having the ability to to correct for quality control issues. Uh, I know a lot of high-end fashion brands get in trouble for how much product they end up destroying at the end of the year. Um, so I, I won't read too much into into that type of thing happening. I'm a little surprised that Wizards hasn't gone with the model I understand Pokemon uses, which is kind of like they 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 provide a bit of a roller coaster in terms of allocations, where a certain set will be seem like it might not have much inventory in the market, and then they flood it, and then on a, a subsequent set they dial it back, and it, it's harder to find, and so they kind of keep the market off balance, and and not let people get too comfortable with their expectations. Feels like that would probably work pretty decently with the the routine releases of of collector boosters and so forth. Uh, this is relatively speculative, but uh, I think there is a challenge of maintaining the amount of printer allocation or printing resource, uh, resources yes. you have. And if you are not filling that space, they are going to find somebody else to fill it. So it's just bad incentives there. Yeah, it's it's tough for their third-party printer that they don't control, which as far as I know is Cardamundi in, in Houston or something for most of the North American product. Uh, yeah, like if they if they have a certain block of uh, factory space that's printing product for them every four weeks or whatever it is, and they give some percentage of it up or they start to try to, to change it, then it becomes tougher to manage. And at some point, you're going to have a supply chain problem. That, that, yep. could, well, that could well be true. If you have the magic wand to wave around and change how Wizards was handling things to improve the viability of magic vending, are there any particular topics that come to mind? Yeah, so we're going to take 
the list, which is the the mystery booster white planeswalker symbol. Yeah. And massively, massively bloat that product out so that roughly half of the cards that are being produced are of that style. Okay. What this largely does is you get to take a, a product like uh, a commander deck, and instead of all these commander deck cards having the, this brand new printing with the commander deck symbol, you instead have all those cards show off the 30-year history of magic. So, you know, the, the soul ring, well, it's like a soul ring, one of an expansion symbol, but uh, if you have a, you know, a rampant growth in this deck, the rampant growth might have the tempest symbol on it, and magic players get exposed to, oh, there's this 25-year-old set that has rampant growth in it. That's really cool. Or, you know, you see, you see Wingsliver with the, the Legion's expansion symbol. And if I have that wrong, I'm sorry. Um, and you get to say, oh, well, what, what is the set about? What's the history of magic? But what you also do as you go across time is you cut down on the number of SKUs that are coming out by kind of confining everything into these same, uh, these same listings. Because this is the effect, effectively white border, right? Like a white border reprint set, it's like, oh, that's the white border one, whatever, who cares? And you just have the original printing, you have the new printing, very clear delineation of this. Um, and then in terms of uh, things like set booster or collector booster, having this, this very big list means that you get a baseline of value that is not tied to the the new set's contents like if there's not a good chase card in the new set it doesn't matter you have twenty dollars in uh older set ev that that you can kind of pull from that mitigates how bad a box can be because at least you're going to get your your heuristic study or what have you out of it i mean you can argue that that is happening effectively with all the subsets that they're adding to standard sets right i mean there's a whole bunch of key old set reprints in Ixalan with new art. They did the same thing with the Enchanted Tales and Wilds of Eldraine. But you're, are you saying from a skew perspective or from a marketing perspective, you think it's better to isolate that within the the uh, list program? I think it's better to lean into the fact that the game is 30 years old. Um, you know, Commission new art, print new art when you think it's appropriate, when you think it adds to the set. I think Lost Caverns of Ixalan goes closer to a reasonable way of, of putting new art on these cards. And new art is always great. But if you're just gonna do, you know, the, like the retro worm coil engine or whatever, it's like, do we do we really need this? Like, um, the other thing is that those types of, of small subsets uh, damage card value way too much. Uh, my my global view of card value is that Watsy should be approaching uh, a quantitative easing approach instead of a uh, shear the sheep and let it regrow kind of approach. I so agree. if you if you take a twenty dollar card. It gets reprinted. It should be worth $12. It shouldn't be worth $4. Uh, Thorn of Amethyst came up in conversation from originally from Lorwyn, now in Brothers War. That that was a $20 card that is now essentially a bulk rare. And if they printed you know, 10% as many, it's probably an $8 card now. And that's healthy. Yeah, I, I don't worry too much about cards that probably never should have been $20 and were only $20 because of the relative rarity given the growth of the game since the 15-year period in the interim where they printed the card. But I do worry about things like Smothering Tithe, Rhystic Study, Doubling Season, these like S-tier EDH staples where it feels very odd to me that they don't recognize the value of Unobtainium that these things definitely should get reprints. You need the key cards to be accessible, but they should get reprints at a relatively predictable cadence. And they've done a lot of, you know, double whammies because design teams thought that the cards worked in both of their sets and there didn't seem to be any kind of internal arbiter that polices, oh, wait, I I know you want that one for your set, but the other set already claimed it, so you're going to have to find another green mythic for your slot. That conversation doesn't really seem to be happening. And as a result, players and collectors can't confidently buy something like a Smothering Tithe, Rhystic Study, Doubling Season without the fear that it's going to get reprinted again in three months. Whereas 10 years ago, that was just a complete non-starter. I mean, prior to Booster Fund, prior to the Master Series, prior to Commander decks, it's really, really hard to find places to reprint most stuff because most of what was getting printed was standard sets and a lot of this stuff wasn't 
desert you know counter spell for years was not going to be legal and standard so you were pretty safe to to reliably predict that counter spell was not going to catch a reprint in this in the recent future um so yeah i i, I we we fully agree that there is there's a there seems to be some flaws in the logic in terms of how they're approaching reprints and and i certainly agree that these subsets you know, Realms and Relics, getting the, the reprint six months later, but with an even better treatment. I saw your tweet um, about the, you know, the foil extended art one ring. And we were talking about this on cast last week about where that's going to land. Because for the people that don't aren't aware, they did something really weird in the original Lord of the Rings where even in the collector boosters, you could not find foil extended arts of many of the rares and mythics. They could only be found in sample packs that were available through the Lord of the Rings collector, uh, sorry, uh, commander decks. And that means that we calculated that there were low single digit thousands of those cards in the world. And as a result, they were so scarce in the market as people started cracking product that the foil extended art, the one ring got up pretty close to a thousand dollars i think i sold a german one for 1300 or something like that um and you know now six months later we knew that there was more stuff coming but we didn't think that they would i I thought that they would do a different treatment of it for sure like i would have assumed the squirrel treatment uh only but instead they did foil extended art but with surge foil over top and so the point you were making on twitter is like you know why are you doing this to collectors (laughs) why undercut their confidence in in throwing a bunch of money at a product yeah like you you want to have a world where somebody can can buy the best thing have a reasonable amount of time to enjoy it and then if if it gets reprinted it goes down later it's not the end of the world that's the nature of the game but they got to play with this card for a year and a half or two years um the other thing is the the second release is so widespread like i saw someone facebook for two hundred dollars each so taking a card that somebody's paying a thousand for that may be worth two or three hundred three months later is is pretty wild. Yeah, that a, that a strictly superior version is basically five times easier to find six months later. It just seems like a total misstep and a model that they should not pursue in earnest. Yeah, I, I, I don't know. I just I just feel like there's I don't think there's a role inside Wizards that is kind of like in charge of the collectability of the product. I, I think that's part of the issue. You know, you have a design team, you have a development team. They are primarily concerned with coming up with ideas for cards and ideas for sets. You have story and creative teams that work on the branding side of the set and how it connects to other sets. But I've never heard tell of a role. And I know they have economics people that look at it from a math perspective, but I've never heard tell of a, a role inside that organization that is you know, looking at the long-term viability of people's interactions, like commitment and interactions with the game from the perspective of not how do we keep collectors happy, but through the lens of we want whales to spend three times more than they used to. How do we make sure that continues to happen without them burning out or getting mad at us and giving up? Yeah, I, I think Watsi has stumbled on some of these these really working out well. Um, if you have a card like uh, Scalding Tar and Zendikar Exhibition that came out 2015, that's $200. And then Scalding Tar and Zendikar Rising Expedition looks very different. You know, stylistically, there's some some similar design choices. It looks cool. The new one's $60. You now have uh, a best version. You now have a, a better version. And there's plenty of playable good versions for everyone to play with. That you can kind of have these three tiers and not have it be, uh, not have it really affect the original printing. Yeah, and and I think that it the thing they need to realize is that it gets tougher every time you reprint something. Like doubling season has been very resilient, and for years the fetches, the enemy fetches were very resilient because they went years without reprinting them, and then they went after them with a vengeance, two or three different ways within a two year period, and then they kept MH two in print for two years straight, and you know all versions of those have just done nothing but languish as a, as a result, and you know in part that's because you don't strictly need those cards to play their biggest format now because edh players have been given so many additional land options over the last decade and and in part it's the the collapse of support for competitive play and the fact that probably most of the people that play modern and legacy these days are people that have had their play sets for quite some time 
so I mean, in part, I look at this, some of this as them being behind the curve on evolving the product mix because we we you know yeah we're getting a bunch of cool premium sets that are designed to reach out to other markets. This this announcement of about Marvel in a couple of years, I'm sure that's got you as as uh, impressed and or excited as as it does most people. But we also have a constant rotation of standard sets that it's unclear, you know, who they're aimed at, given that most of the drafting and most of the standard that takes place takes place online. Right, like the the product mix of how they're creating standard sets feels like it's it's just we're going back to this plane. We have nostalgia. There's no overarching story about how we're how we're designing and setting these things up. And obviously, I say that well, I guess we had uh, return to Ixalan and return to Eldraine is the last two sets. Yeah. And then before that, you know, more of the, the Phyrexian story, it's like there's no there's no really groundbreaking place that we went since Streets of Nukapenna, which was a year and a half ago. Which was not particularly well received as a setting. Right. Like I, I don't envy their job. Like it, deciding where magic sets are going to be uh what the setting is going to look like and how, how people are going to interact with this is can't be an easy thing, uh, but that's their job to figure it out and not, not really mine. Yeah. I mean, it's from a creative perspective, given that they borrow heavily from existing cultural tropes and archetypes, it's pretty tough 30 years in to bring anything new to the table. Like when I heard that we're doing a Western theme set, I was like, yeah, that's, I'm sure that's been brought up before and rejected because it was felt like it was bottom of the barrel, but we are near the bottom of that barrel. So they're going to do that stuff, especially right. since they, they have to be much more sensitive about what other cultures they, you know, there was some uproar around, for instance, Kaladesh being, you know, appropriative the, so yeah, I mean, it, it is, it is a tough rule for sure. Um, is there anything else you would change about, about the product mix? and or price points of various SKUs that you think would improve sell-through? I think Watsi spends a lot of effort on what the new player experience is like and how new players get into the game. And I don't think they've really figured out the ideal product for a new player to get in. Uh, seeing 40 to $45 commander decks, I don't think is really the, the place of, of jumping on for people. Um, Having twenty dollars commander decks is, which they had for Zendikar Rising, and uh, Kaldheim immediately after, I thought was a pretty good way of engaging with with customers. Is having having one or two of those sets a year, so that stores can have a cheap option, amongst other options. Um, I th- I tweeted about this earlier in the week, and that there absolutely needs to be a better way of getting standard cards into the ecosystem. Um, I th- I know we had uh, various standard and pioneer pre-constructed get started decks at, at different points, and I think those all ended up being very poorly received because of people like the gaming company, and that these items were opened by the hundreds, by the thousands. I mean, literally, you can go on on TCG Player, and there's fifteen thousand Bone Crusher giants listed by by a couple of these people, and it's unhealthy for the game when. You can't say, oh, well, this is a $40 deck and I feel like I get $40 in singles out of it. Instead, it's, oh, well, Arclight Phoenix went from $8 to $3 because of all these copies getting opened and now now this item feels very overpriced at the LGS. So I would I would want $20 commander decks. I would want uh, stores getting a small allocation every, every month or every quarter of standard viable decks that include... Uh, that are that are pretty high power level, like like a hundred dollar secondary market single value stores pay thirty five dollars for maybe twenty five dollars for, but a store might get uh, one for every six commander players they have. So it's up to the store to say, okay, well, like we can sell this sell this cheap, we can give this away, we have some flexibility, but we're actually going to make money on this. I think we can both agree that the announcement about play boosters being a merging of draft and set boosters makes a lot of sense uh, versus the current alternative. But I, I've wondered aloud on cast whether they should be going a step further, where there is a set of cards designed to be drafted, and there is a set of cards designed to be played in a standard 
format and that standard and that they could be separated so that the play boosters are are for draft collector boosters are a different thing that mixes in extra stuff like for instance with the ixalan release this month the jurassic park cards could be exclusive to the collector boosters because they make sense in that context if they're not going to be legal in other places that's a great place for them to be exclusively right now they do a thing where they try to make the, that stuff more accessible by often including it in, in play boosters and i'm not sure that that's necessary given the focus of those boosters or at least at the same drop rates. But it seems to me like you could take your idea about standard decks and just switch to that entirely for the cards that are aimed at that, you know, four per deck constructed play situation by just having some kind of standard subscription model through the F&M program, where it's like, pick your deck. There are four or six or eight decks this season. You get the whole deck. It costs whatever... The market bears on that. Maybe it's $100. And you know you're going to get to play it for a 16-week season or something. Or maybe it's a two-year season. You know, with, with potential add-ons that you get from from the other releases that were that are put out later in the year. Where you can, you know, you can break that deck down. You can rebuild it. But you can also just take it to the LGS and play. Because that those original decks, the problem with those was they were often so far from playable that yeah you could play games with it as an introduction to the game but you you also have to be comfortable losing because the tune decks were going to destroy you all night long right and like one of the advantages of of releasing pre-constructed deck product is the development time is much shorter they should be able to do it all much faster and that's that's kind of where that thought process comes from uh how watsy balances this like we we want people to be able to play limited versus versus constructed uh, versus collect the cards is really trying to chase different audiences. And I, again, I think it's a very difficult job for, for them to figure out. Um, I I would be interested to see what a draft booster that approaches uh, a cube type feel sure. may, may entail. Um, not, not all the way cube, obviously, not high powered million, million reprints, whatever. But just the hyper curated. We are we are making this a a fun limited environment. We're gonna make it like a battle box, like a a lot of a lot of tricks, kind of a, a lot of complexity, uh, and not really worry about designing cards for standard play. Just designing things that that work well in the limited environment. Uh, but they do have to balance around arena existing as well. Yeah, there's there's a lot of product product design space as opposed to card design space where i feel there is room for innovation much more than there actually is left on the on the vine for card design space <laughs> card design space is real tough at 30 years when you've got eighty thousand plus cards or whatever it is yeah um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if uh they they changed something so that the arena draft experience wasn't quite as tight to the the paper one just because we're starting to see players in the local level say oh i've already drafted the set 15 times online and you know, I've played it three or four times on paper. I have the cards I want from the set. Give me something fresh. Give me something new. Right. So from respect, you, you know, you've made the statement that this is like maybe the worst period to have been vending in, in, in your memory. Has, has that forced your operation to pivot into other games? Like, are you guys, have you guys participated in Flesh and Blood, One Piece? Are you messing around with Lorcana? Uh, I am fully focused and committed on Magic. Um, I think the state of things really rewards people being focused and uh, narrowing in on, on what they're good at and watching uh, everything kind of kind of build on itself and really trying to keep all the capital in this one silo. Uh, I think overall it's pretty protected from significant downturn just because of how many people are, are currently playing and that there are people who will still be playing Magic at Summer Camp 20 years from now with you know, then 40 year old cards or whatever, uh, just the way that people approach the game. So I'm not, I'm not too worried. Uh, we've actually largely uh, gotten out of, of Pokemon and uh, some of the other things that we've, we dabbled in throughout the pandemic just to free up more capital to be in the magic space. Okay. So, so do you feel it's more from a vendor perspective, it's more about 
changing your methodologies, changing your internal processes, the way that you, you manage and handle inventory, the way that you, how you structure your, the logic around what you buy, how deep you go on it, what you pay for it. At, so a shifting in model as opposed to a shifting in viability. Right. Um, you know, when all the merch is, is used, you can control your margin, you can control what you own pretty easily by, by saying yes to collections, saying no to collections, and choosing numbers that work for you. And the reality is that liquidity is, is down on a lot of the uh, high dollar amount asset classes, and you just have to adjust. Um, we had a conversation about Apocalypse Foil Lanoir Waste about three or four months ago. Um, so if you fact check me on the numbers, it's not going to line up exactly. But TCG Low was about $120 for a copy. And Card Kingdom had a fairly large amount of stock, like four or five copies at 90. And we looked at it and said, hey, we shouldn't be selling these at 120. We probably need to be closer to 100 because you wait six months and TCG is going to catch up to Card Kingdom eventually. Or if we try to get 120, this card sells once a month. We're not going to be able to, to sell the four copies we have. Let's figure out what our pricing structure is going to be that makes all of this work. Sure. And so if if we're looking at, you know, down the road, the, the universe is beyond rules on. We've got Mar- Final Fantasy next, uh, or in 2025, 2025, right? And Modern Horizons 3 next summer, and then presumably late summer, I'm assuming, in 2025, we're either getting the first big Marvel set or we're getting a set of Marvel Commander decks and then a bigger set the following year. Does that give you, is that like a ray of hope? Do, do you see the Marvel thing as being a pretty big deal? I think it's going to be very challenging to attract new people into Magic and then go from playing with their, their Iron Man deck to wanting to grab you know, Tybalt the Fiendblooded or whatever that that is in the Magic Mythos to go along with it. And I think it's a, a very long uh, runway up there. At the same time, you know, comics is a comics is a pop culture event is significant, um, and there are already big events throughout the country that tens of thousands of people attend. That uh, Watsi, if they chose to put marketing dollars into it, could set up and interact with these customers and really maybe convert this whole brand new section of customers into loyal customers, like. If they had a Magic the Gathering play area at New York Comic Con, like obviously they, Comic Cons have always had like a game area, a Magic area, but like it's targeted at the people who already already play Magic and and there's drafts or whatever. It's not it's not a big deal. It's not a Watsy is setting all this up and, and putting all the money behind it. And I think there's a lot of opportunity for those types of events, but I think it requires a ton of effort on Watsy's part to really get people to move from I, I play Iron Man as my commander deck to, yeah, I own 15 commander decks and one of them is Marvel. Of course, depending on how many Marvel sets they print, and they definitely suggest that they're printing multiple, uh, they might not need to. <laughs> you might, given what they, you know, power creep in things like MH3 and Lord of the Rings, you might be able to make a deck that is almost entirely from the the, the IP that you prefer and, and still be a viable player. And if I was them, that's part of how I would be approaching the product design is you want somebody to be able to show up at the place where they did their pre-release for Marvel, where they got hooked, and go home, buy some more cards online or from their local vendor, and then upgrade the deck and then bring it back and table Iron Man against the field and be able to you know comfortably stay in the mythos that they prefer and still play on the, you know the game as a platform. There has to be value down that down that road. Yeah, it's it's just a challenge of how much do you want to burn the bridges from the existing players because the wandering being the best thing in in modern for a while wasn't great for modern players or great for how people perceive the game, and the wandering is very much feels like a magic card still. Yeah, because the the Lord of the Rings IP is probably the close. Clo- I mean, you could argue that a large number of the existing tropes in magic are just stolen lifted directly right. from Lord of the Rings anyway. Um, so yeah, it's a, it's a very good fit. Although I will say that like having play, I said this before on cast recently that 
having played across from all of the UB cards over the last couple of years, it's jarring the first time, and then you just forget about it completely. Like I've I've played against Stranger Things and Street Fighter and 40k and Lord of the Rings and whatever. It just doesn't matter. Like you, you just end up you you look down at the board, you're still playing Magic with Magic cards. I mean, I would I would argue that for some people that are more visual learners, the the different the massive differences in variant art and so forth are probably more jarring overall than than the IP shift. Um. I guess the last thing I wanted to finish on is how are things going in the, you know, legacy vintage duels and power market these days versus say mid COVID. I think a lot of the old school can get split up amongst a couple different asset classes and it all kind of behaves differently from each other. Uh, things like uh, duels generally sell very well in person at events still. Um, and I'm I'm pretty happy with both the amount I own and, and the overall velocity. We tend to uh, we tend to try and keep a hundred plus like ten of each in stock um, all the time. So duels I'm like pretty happy with. They've obviously retracted a little bit, but thousand dollar underground seas is not a healthy place to be. We're now in the the market of seven hundred dollar underground seas, which feels okay. Uh, and there's there's definitely demand on both sides. Um, Power is seeing a pretty big uptick because Eternal Weekend is coming up and people are actively trying to finish their decks to play in Eternal Weekend. Uh, before that, I had to resort to uh, offering some very good trading deals in August to try to clear some power off my books that ended up working out okay. Um, basically, I had posted a small amount of items and said, hey, if anyone wants to give me 100% TCU player tracker low in trade on this. So my $3,000 mocks, your $3,000 of secret or foils or whatever else you have to give me uh, just to get some movement. But we repriced everything after Vegas down kind of aggressively. And at Star City Dallas, we've moved maybe eight or 10 pieces of power, which is like a, a very high number, even for us, for a show. So it's like power at the the reasonable low numbers is is selling. Um, that's like Lotus in the the ten thousand range, and then Mox is in the the twenty two to twenty four hundred dollar range for for HP across the board. Um, is is probably the equilibrium point. Um, all of the other old school that is not uh, very widely playable has gotten completely hammered. If you take one of fun graph to put on the screen. Uh, looking at Preacher from the Dark, the card went from like $150 to $25 or $30 across the, the past three years because sure. nobody actually wants to buy these things. Uh, but a lot of Arabian Nights is, is still doing fine. Uh, Legend suffers from there being a pretty good amount of it. So the, the bad cards like your Land Equilibrium, your Eureka, uh, don't really sell that well. Uh, We've actually sold a lot of uh, Italian moat slash the abyss slash chains recently, um, but that's again a function of pricing them in the the mid five hundred range. So I think there are still customers, there are still people buying the stuff. Uh, it's just more important than ever to really uh, ignore what tcgplayer.com says the market is on this stuff and figure out a price that you think it's actually going to transact at. Would you imagine that there is more or less of all that stuff? Meaning, you know, the first few years of magic stuff, the reserve list stuff, more or less changing hands now than, say, three years ago, 10 years ago? Definitely less now than 10 years ago, because 10 years ago, you're still seeing a lot of original owner stuff come to market. Uh, I remember collections where the person was like, yeah, I, I uh, could never find the other half of the legend set until I went on vacation in California and met someone who had every card I'd, I'd never seen before in legends. And uh, you get those types of experiences. You're not really seeing that as much anymore. And I, you know, 10 years ago, the stuff was still relatively affordable. Like I, I index old school kind of compared to a car payment and like a $500 underground C is like 
a reasonably nice car payment at this point, or more or less. Whereas uh, when when underground seas were seventy five dollars, it was oh your one car payment is four underground seas. Um, just to contextualize how people are going to budget and look at this stuff, so right. it really has gotten less affordable. Right, and so what you're referring to is that you don't don't necessarily think that the market of people that are interested in those cards has shrunk. In fact, may have grown, although you didn't say that explicitly. But that because it's moved up the price curve over time, the number of willing participants to acquire set objects is naturally smaller. Right. I, I, I if you look in absolute terms of of how many, you know, how many moats sell on TCG player in a year, like. Or or black lows, like how many black lows sell on TCG player? And the number's like eight, maybe something like that. Like very very small uh, compared to what you'd expect, and, and compared to what it was, you know, three years ago, I probably sold eight black lotuses in twenty twenty or or twenty nineteen. Gotcha. Not, obviously, TCG player is not the whole market, but it's just the easiest thing to observe. Sure. I mean, a part of this is, you know, there's no reason that any EDH player would not want duels, but they may not need duels, and more importantly, may not be willing to spend 700 to acquire a land that is only a few percentage points better than commonly right. available $5 cards. So just to wrap up, do you expect to be vending magic? Given that magic's all eggs in one basket for you, do you expect to be vending magic in five years, 10 years? Yeah, I'm, I'm getting older. I'm, I'm still young. I'm, I'm 33 right now. So in the five-year, ten-year span, very likely, um, I've looked at a couple of circumstances where I would want to move on. Uh, if we have another Black Swan old school moves up a million dollars sort of of jump, you know that is probably one of my catalysts to to move on. But if Magic is staying in this, uh, you know, mid nothing too crazy happening cycle, I'm going to continue buying and selling magic cards uh, as long as I enjoy doing it, which is a lot right now. So when you talk about the the trigger that would get you to get out and you refer, you were talking about prices getting very, very high. Is that because you would have a natural exit point for your inventory? Right. I, I could feel like I could sell everything and the dollar amount would, would feel like I uh, could walk away comfortably and, and move on to the next phase of my life. Got it. Cause you, you would just have a pile a pile of capital that's recouped and available for redeployment. Yeah, like everyone has a number. If if I said, "Hey, I'll, I'll give you a billion dollars if you sell everything you own and move across the country," like you would, you would definitely do it for a billion dollars, and you'd probably still do it for a hundred million. And somewhere in between a dollar and a hundred million is enough. <laughs> Fair. And so the ultimately, I've heard you, you know, make a lot of. Uh, astute criticisms uh, of the current product mix and wizards policies and so forth but you haven't said to me that you think the game is dying which is something that i've seen talked about on social media lately uh so just to confirm that specifically you think the game is in a healthy enough place that there will be vendors happily vending for years to come i think there are plenty of people that magic is their core hobby it is very difficult to get someone to change their core hobby and while people will dabble with other games magic as a game system is just robust enough and has become enough of a social event that you can always just go back to that's that's my leisure activity is is i play magic and you know i don't have to think about the rules i don't have to think about what what deck i'm playing you know if, if you pulled out a 2011 commander deck from the package the first year they did commander decks and sat down and at a commander game with you, I would still have a good time. Yeah, I can right. confirm that. We d- we just played precons of a variety of different eras together the, a couple of weeks ago with the pro traders, and that's exactly what happened. It was a good time. Uh, and I certainly have started to think of Magic as more of a platform than a specific game, which is which is very much where I think the the product mix already represents itself and where it's headed as well. All right. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time out to talk to me during your b- busy schedule. Michael uh, Caffrey from Tales of Adventure. Uh, always fantastic to have you on the show. Thank you for having me. Thanks very much and have a good night. Good night to our listeners. Mm-hmm.